Our sermon text for this evening uh, comes out of Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 through 50. It reads like this. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good in the containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is God's word. Father, I pray as we've worshipped you tonight and we've, we've asked, we've pleaded with you that you would be our vision, that that would come to fruition as your word is given to us, that your spirit would take the words from my feeble lips and empower people's hearts, encourage people's hearts. Be present with us now, Holy Spirit, we ask in a powerful way in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, over the last uh, few weeks, we've been looking at the kingdom parables of Jesus. And, uh, and each week, we have sort of noted that each parable deals with a question that anybody might have about the kingdom of God. Specifically, if God rules over the world, then why are certain things the way they are? Uh, so the first week, we dealt with the parable of the sower. And the parable of the sower basically answered the question... Um, you know, how do people become members of God's kingdom? How does it happen? Uh, with the parable of the wheat and the weeds, you had basically Jesus dealing with the question of why there is evil in the world, that God really rules it. Uh, two weeks ago, the insignificance of the kingdom with the mustard seed. It seems like the kingdom's not making much of a difference a lot of the time. And then last week, we talked about the value of the kingdom, specifically the value of the members of the kingdom of you to God. And tonight... Jesus is going to deal with the question, what kinds of people are gathered into God's kingdom? What kinds of people basically qualify for God's kingdom? Now, just to catch you up on, on the historical backdrop of the parable, uh, we have to remember that the Jews Jesus was generally speaking to uh, had a certain view of the world. They had a certain worldview. And that worldview was basically this. I am a religiously observant person, and anybody who is not like me is inferior. I am pretty much better than other people. That was essentially the worldview that the Jewish leadership that Jesus so often interacted with had of others. Indeed, that mindset sort of taints everything that goes on in ancient Israel. So uh, it tainted the way that people did business. You weren't supposed to do business with a non-Jew in the marketplace. Uh, you weren't supposed to uh, worship in the same places. You weren't supposed to eat with them. There was all sorts of uh, customs that made it so that it was very clearly made to, or very clearly stated to the non-Jewish population, you are second class. As a matter of fact, even in the temple in Jerusalem, if a Gentile was to convert to Judaism, they could worship in the temple, but their space in the temple was far away from where the action was happening. And it was actually the place where they had decided to put like the money changers and various kinds of marketplace activities. For so the, the, perp the point is, is that there was a gigantic mindset that said only a certain kind of person is going to be welcomed into God's kingdom. Only a certain kind of person qualifies. And so it's in response to kind of the zeitgeist of his time, uh, the, the message floating around of his time, that Jesus brings this parable 
and essentially shares what his view is, what God's view is of the kinds of people that he gathers into his kingdom. And you will notice right away, it's quite a bit different than the vision I just shared with you that they were adhering to. So the first thing we notice is it's, it's, it doesn't just include one kind, but it includes all kinds. Uh, listen to the parable again. Look back at the text if you have your, your bulletin. Very first words, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. Now to give you a picture of the net mentioned here, you have to almost picture a wide kind of drag net pulled behind the boat. And I mean, it's just, it's dragging through the water and everything that the net comes across, it picks up. There's just no way to avoid its path. And so in answer to the question, what kinds of people are included in the kingdom, Jesus' answer is pretty clear. All kinds. Every kind of person. I did not pick this passage out in light of yesterday's events in Charlotte, North Virginia. I picked this passage out weeks ago but you probably couldn't get a more appropriate passage than this passage for this evening in light of the events that so many of us saw in the news yesterday with various protests getting violent and a uh, white supremacist kid from all looks of it driving his car into a crowd of protesters and killing and maiming people. Seeing the ugly aftermath of racism Right on TV, and we saw, you can see the video, it's gruesome. Let me break down what Jesus is saying here in this parable. Who's welcome into his kingdom? All races, all ethnicities, all genders, all socioeconomic groups, all cultures, all winners, all losers, all addicts, all quitters, all killers, all adulterers, Hard workers, lazy workers, robbers, liars, truth-tellers, Republicans, Democrats, CEOs, and just about every single other human being. That's the point. Jesus collects everybody, scoops up everybody into his kingdom. And so when Jesus gives his great commission at the end of his ministry, after he's risen from the dead and he's about to ascend back to heaven... He commands his disciples to preach the gospel to all nations, to everyone. The Apostle Paul, catching fire with this vision in 1 Corinthians 9, says that to Jews, I try to become like Jews so that I might win some of them. And to those that were weak, I tried to become more weak so that I might win some of them to the gospel. And he goes through all these lists of different people that he tried to minister to. And he concludes with sort of this crescendo where he says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. The important word there is all. All. Indeed, the picture presented by the text in Revelation this evening is that one of the glories of heaven will be that people from every tribe and tongue and nation, from every single background on planet Earth, will gather, maybe for the first time genuinely in history, around the throne of God, praising His name 
in one voice. One of the glories will be the diversity of his kingdom when it arrives. That said, this is not natural for us. Social science has noted for uh, quite some time that we are simply prone to looking for people that act the same as us and talk like us and, and make the same amount of money as us and, and do the same, have the same interests. I mean, we, we, we collect into groups where we feel we're like the others. I remember this coming home to me. I was in my early 20s. I, I sort of, you know, I kind of stumbled out of high school and more, wasn't sure what I was going to do. I was, by the time I was 19, I had this sense that I was called to pastoral ministry, but I really didn't want to do that. So I tried to find other avenues. And in the midst of that, you know, in my early 20s, I'm going to community college. I'm sort of just taking a class here and, you know, getting a C and taking a class there. Maybe if the teacher was nice, getting a B and not really taking anything seriously. I just didn't, I didn't, wasn't, didn't feel ready to really pursue. As a result, I didn't have much money. It's pretty broke all the time. At the same time, I had some friends that had right out of high school, they went into their career, uh, or they went into college, and they got their four-year degree, like literally in four years, you know, like, like it was designed to be, and got into a career, and they had success, and they started making money. And, you know, we used to hang out every weekend, every weekend together we'd do stuff. But when they started making more money, they wanted to go out to nicer restaurants than, you know, Taco Bell. And they wanted to go out to concerts and stuff, and, you know, they could drop 75 bucks on a ticket or something, and that was cool. And, uh, you know, they had all these things that made it possible for them to spend money, and I didn't have any money. And you know what happened? Eventually, over time, we just started hanging out less and less because I couldn't do the stuff that they were doing, and they didn't want to just hang out at Taco Bell with me. <laughs> now, the point was, it wasn't their fault. I still care greatly for these guys. I know they care greatly for me. But what had happened is, because of our, our economic status, things had just distanced us. It, it happens to, in all sorts of ways. It's very natural for us. And yet, what God is saying about His kingdom is that the kingdom, the kingdom that He's setting up is meant to look different. That His church, as a representative of His kingdom, is meant to be a place where you have people from every race and every background and every socioeconomic status gathering together in the same pews, singing the same strong words to our Savior in spite of whatever they are outside these doors. And by God's grace, this church will reflect that. I think all of you here tonight know we're just getting started. We've got a long way to go. But my prayer is, and it's been my prayer since the very beginning, is that this church would truly be a place where everyone who walked in the doors would go, uh-huh, I can, yes, it's okay here. I can be here. But they'd be welcomed with open arms, whether they walk in with tattered clothing or really fancy clothing. <laughs> that we would welcome those, as Robert Capon says, you know, Robert Capon, a commentator, scholar, he points out that in the text, in the Greek text here, where it says all kinds of fish, actually in the Greek text it doesn't say fish. We just assume it does, and so we, we put it in there because it makes sense. In the Greek text it just says literally all kinds. 
And he points out that that means that the net, it could be that the net is collecting everything on planet Earth, that God is reconciling all things, including the rest of creation. And then he comes up with this little quip as he's commenting on this. He says, this means the church should not get itself into the habit of rejecting as junk the human equivalents of the old boots and bottles and beer cans that such a dragnet would inevitably dredge up. So his kingdom gathers all kinds. But we must also keep in mind that the kingdom gathers reluctant kinds. So even as it gathers people from every walk of life, it gathers reluctant kinds. I mean, if you think about it, no creature is trying to be caught in a net. Every fish is prone to swimming the opposite way and fighting the net. There's a sense in which the net of the kingdom is grabbing a hold of you in a way that's contrary to the direction you want to go. That is the case always with the net. That's how God's kingdom operates in our lives. It is actually true that every single person who's ever been gathered into the kingdom has been gathered in spite of their will. God has to gather us in spite of us because we don't want to be caught up in the net of his kingdom naturally. Thus the Bible says no one naturally seeks after God, uh, that naturally we're alienated and hostile to God. That's sort of our, our default. Uh, we're kind of fighting against his rule, his authority, his control over us. And, and the picture that I couldn't help but think of as I, as I pictured resisting this net that's dragging me is the first time I went deep sea fishing. I don't know if any of you have gone deep sea fishing. Uh, I've only gone once. I don't know what I'm doing. I have no clue what I'm doing. But I had a friend who did, a couple friends, and so we all went out together. We chartered this boat. Uh, and for the first day, you know, the, the only thing I did was grab squid, live squid, and put hooks through them, which is, it's just gross. It's gross. And then I threw the line out. No fish. No nothing. Whole day. No nothing. Next day, wake up, throw the line out, expecting the same thing, wondering why we spent all this money to go on deep, deep sea fishing boat. And, uh, and then I start getting some nibbles. I can feel it. And then just all of a sudden, boom. I mean, my pole is bent over, the, the line is you know, stringing out, and I am doing everything I can to hold this thing up. And I am convinced by the way this gigantic fish feels that I have got jaws on my line. I cannot reel it up. I mean, I'm pulling. I'm trying to do what I've seen on TV, you know, like the pole and the reel and the pole and the reel. And I'm, I'm not getting anywhere. This guy is just moving me around. I walked around the boat twice with the pole trying to keep trying to reel him in. I couldn't do it. And finally, he was fighting and he was fighting and I was fighting and I was fighting. And finally, I got this gigantic shark up into the boat. Well, it was a white sea bass, but that doesn't matter. This gigantic 20-pound white sea bass into the boat. And, uh, and it was still flapping around after I got it in the boat. It, was, it still was fighting with everything in his being. And when I think about the way God has to gather people into his kingdom, it's sort of like that. Like, it, it's not willful on our part. It, it, there's, God has to grab a hold of us. He has to change our hearts in spite of us in order to bring us into the kingdom. You see, I think one thing that many non-Christians get wrong about Christians 
I talked to quite a few non-Christians. I rather enjoyed conversations with my non-Christian friends. But I think they assume for, for us, for, for those who believe, that we just sort of buy whatever we're taught from the pulpit, hook, line, and sinker. I think they assume that we just sort of easily believe what, what we hear in Scripture. In truth, I've been a pastor for 10 years, over 10 years now. The vast majority of Christians I've ever known wrestle with doubts and struggles and oftentimes resist the God that they say they believe in and submit to. Faith is for the Christians I know. Not a cakewalk at all. It's not some sort of like, you know, easy believism, you know, cloudy and clouds in the sky, pie in the sky kind of thing. Not at all. It's like, I, I believe it, but I'm really strong. It, we're like the guy in the story of Mark, uh, Mark's gospel when Jesus says, do you believe I can heal your son? And he says, I believe, help my unbelief. I think that's a good picture of a lot of us. I believe, help my unbelief. And so like C.S. Lewis, he would call himself the most dejected and reluctant convert. There's a lot of us, I dare say most of us, that feel like that at times. It's a struggle. And it'll be a struggle for the rest of our life. Nonetheless, that's the way the kingdom works. The net's dragging us in. The net is dragging us in in spite of our seeming reluctance because God is good like that. He is gracious like that. And yet, this creates a big problem for us. And, and, and that is, if you look at the text again, it's pretty clear that by the end of the parable... I mean, it's a parable about judgment. The end of the parable, Jesus says the only fish or the only kinds of things that are kept are good things. Well, how do reluctant things or reluctant fish get turned into good things or good fish? How do we, how do we who are naturally reluctant and push back become good? Now, I don't mean, I'm not talking when I say good, what you probably are naturally inclined to hear, which is morally good. I'm not talking about goody-two-shoes. If you understand the way that word good is used in this text that way, then it's pretty easy to understand what Jesus is saying. Like, hey, you know, goody-two-shoes are the ones who are going to inherit the kingdom of God. And, indeed, that's what most world religions teach. You're good enough, you're smart enough, then you'll get in. But that's not what he's saying. I think what he's saying is, is that we need to be declared good. So how do we get that? Well, I'll tell you, I, I, there's a word that you probably aren't familiar with. It's the word imputation. Imputation. Don't worry if your heart doesn't you know, go flutter with joy and delight after you're, me saying that word. Most people don't use it. Um, but, I, but I believe you know the concept of what imputation is. And I believe that to understand how a reluctant kind of person can be made into a good person, you have to understand this concept that I'm presenting here of imputation. 
So here it is. Listen carefully. This is what I this is how I think reluctant kinds are made in good kinds. The Bible says that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life for you. Don't forget those two little words. For and you. The Bible also declares that Jesus Christ died for you. It declares that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead for you. It declares that Jesus Christ ascended to heaven and intercedes or prays for you. Now what does it mean when it says for you? Well, it means that Jesus accomplished all these things as your substitute. And the Bible declares that all this stuff that Jesus did for you in space-time history is given to you through faith. In other words, when I say imputation is how you're made good, it goes something like this. You say... I need Jesus' goodness because I've not been good, then he credits you as good. You come to him and say, I don't got anything. All I got is junk. And he says, great, I'll take that. You take my good. We'll call it even. Now, from now on, forever, I will only see you as good, perfect, holy, righteous. You give me your junk, I'll give you my goodness. That's how it happens. That's how it happens. Martin Luther referred to this as the, as the great exchange. And so he said it like this. He said, he, he explained it this way. Our most merciful father sent his only son into the world and laid upon him the sins of all men, saying, you be Peter, that denier, Paul, that persecutor, blasphemer, and cruel oppressor, David, that adulterer, that sinner which did eat the apple in paradise, that thief which hanged upon the cross, and briefly, you be the person which has committed the sins of all men. See, therefore, that you pay and satisfy for them. Here now comes the law and says, I find him a sinner. Therefore, let him die upon the cross. And so he sets upon him and kills him. But by this means, the whole world is purged and cleansed from all sin. That's how reluctant kinds are declared to be good kinds. You've been declared good because of the work of Jesus. Now, I can hear it. There might be an objection in one of your minds. You say, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. But then who are the bad fish at the end of the barrel? If everybody's declared good because of the work of Jesus, well, then who are the bad fish to throw away? Well, the... Those who simply refuse to accept that Jesus already calls you good. Hey, you don't want to accept that that's you. That's up to you. You don't want it, but let, let me tell you, he's already done it. He's already done it. Be assured you all have been caught up in the net of the kingdom, and the fisherman has declared you good. And that reality most likely means... That when we finally actually do get to the shore and we see the kingdom in person, like we get to heaven, we're going to be really surprised at the kinds of people that we see walking in with us. C.S. Lewis talked about it. 
how surprised we'll all be in heaven. I'll close with the way a friend and theologian describes it, a man named Rod Rosenblatt, describes heaven this way. Because God makes, God takes all kinds of people, reluctant kinds of people, and declares them good kinds. Rod Rosenblatt says, failures are going to walk into heaven. Be welcomed into heaven. Leap into heaven like a calf leaping out of its stall. Laughing and laughing as if it's all too good to be true. There are going to be call girls. There are going to be drug dealers. Maybe even a couple of lawyers. <laughs> That's his joke. There are going to be members of the cults who never really got what the cult leaders taught, but just trusted that Jesus' blood and cross was for their sin and for their hatred of God, for their wickedness. Surprises, lots of surprises. It bugs me to say it, Rosenblatt says, but there might even be a couple of IRS employees, maybe a congressman or congresswoman, but to put it closer to home, there might even be a theologian or a pastor or two who actually really did believe in Jesus, bet the blue chips on the blood of Jesus and nothing else. In heaven, we will meet cowards, scum, bottom-of-the-barrel reprehensibles, jerks, deadbeat dads, murderers, all sorts of rabble, and they died believing in Jesus and his blood as their only hope. And it was enough. That's exactly the kinds of people that God sweeps up into his kingdom. All kinds of reluctant kinds that he's declared to be good kinds on account of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, even as I preach this right now, I think about my own reluctance to accept what your word says about me. To accept, because I'm, I'm aware of my, my failures and my sins, my struggles. Maybe there's someone else in here tonight that feels the same way. They're just looking at their life and they're going, I, I want to believe that I'm, I'm declared to be a good kind, but I see too much, too much of the bad. Father, remind us now that your declaration of us is not based on our or how we feel in any given moment or on our momentary failures, but based on your word. And your word declares those who believe in Jesus Christ to be righteous, perfect, children of a heavenly Father who adores us. Thank you for this in Jesus' name.